Welcome to Brain and Advance. We're delighted to be joined by Jeff McMahon from the University of Oxford. And we're going to be speaking about one of the world's greatest philosophers, Derek Parfit. Jeff, would you like to start with a thought experiment? Here's one I once gave to Derek. That's why I've chosen it. It's like his teletransportation thought experiment with one difference. As in Derek's teletransportation thought experiment, you can imagine there is a scanning booth on earth that normally scans a person's body, sends all the data to a replicator booth on Mars where uh, a perfect molecule by molecule replica of the person on earth is instantaneously created. And in the first version of the thought experiment, as Derek gave it, the original person's body is disintegrated at the time that it is scanned. Uh, here's my variation of the thought experiment. It goes like this. Here I am on earth and I'm going over to the scanning booth. But at, right at that moment, a, a nuclear bomb lands on my head and it blows me up and the scanning booth instantaneously. Right at that moment, the replicator booth on Mars randomly produces a molecule by molecule replica of me exactly as I was just before the nuclear bomb landed on my head. Okay, what, are, what am I to think about this person uh, on Mars who's exactly like me in every way as I was the moment my body was disintegrated on Earth? And the reason I gave that thought experiment to Derek is that in Reasons in Persons, he claims that the criterion of personal identity is non-branching psychological continuity with any cause. He canvassed some various options, including the right cause or a reliable cause or whatever. But he ended up thinking any cause will do, but there has to be a cause. And I gave him this thought experiment to persuade him that he shouldn't have a causation requirement in his account of personal identity. So I asked him, is there really any difference between my case and yours that matters either for personal identity or for what I should care about in an egoistic way? Because for Derek, a psychological connection is just really a similarity between an earlier and a later mental state. That's what a psychological connection is. It, it doesn't require any underlying continuity of the tissues in the brain in which these mental states are registered. Now, my view was that kind of continuity of the brain is actually necessary, both for personal identity and for what matters. He didn't think so. And I thought, if you don't think so, then you should think that causation is inessential as well. And he agreed with me. And I've been going through his papers in uh, recent months, and I have found old letters and exchanges and so on that we had in which he wrote back to me saying, yeah, you're right. Don't, I don't need causation, but he never did a second edition of reasons and persons and, and, and changed that. I just want to clarify something. So in the original thought experiment, I step onto the pad and then a moment later, I step off the pad, let's say on Mars. And I'm assuming that I cease to exist on the original pad, or are we talking about the experiment where I continue to be on the original pad. In his version and in my version, 
the original body that steps onto the pad, well, mine doesn't quite get to the pad. His gets on the pad, is scanned, and the scanning itself causes the complete disintegration of the body. So the human organism is utterly and totally annihilated. In my case, the human organism is utterly and totally annihilated as well, but it's not scanned. The question whether it, somebody dies or continues to exist is precisely what's at issue. And so Derek thought, no, teletransportation is just a very quick mode of transportation. One doesn't require the same body or the same brain. All that's necessary is that there should be these psychological connections between the person on the pad and the person in the replicator booth on Mars. And for Derek, again, the psychological connections are just similarities of mental states. They don't require any physical continuity or causation, as I persuaded him. And so for Derek, I survive. I don't die. My body's disintegrated, but I'm not my body. I, you know, I'm, I'm the, the, the person on Mars. And it's important to that thought experiment that the disintegration of the body on Earth and the creation of the replica on Mars should be more or less simultaneous. There shouldn't be any overlap. Because as you note, he gave a further variant of that thought experiment in which there's actually a malfunction of the scanning booth. You step on the pad, the body is scanned, the replica is created on Mars. You're a little bit puzzled. You walk outside the scanning booth and the technician tells you, hmm, we've had a bit of a glitch in the machine here. Uh, it hasn't disintegrated your body, but it has damaged your heart and you're going to die within a few days. But don't worry, there's the replica carrying on on Mars. And he was um, unfazed by this, but it's precisely that kind of variant on the case that persuades me. This isn't a case of fission. He has other cases of fission that I think are plausible, but I don't think this is a case in which, as he would say, I have ceased to exist because there are two equally good candidates for me, the one who's just left the scanning booth and the one who's been created on Mars. According to, to Derek, they can't both be me. But neither one of them has a better claim to be me than the other. Therefore, he concludes, I'm neither of those people. I have ceased to exist. Two new people have come into existence, but I'm related in the same way to both of them. And one of them has a very bleak future ahead, but the other one's got a long and happy future on Mars or, you know, back on Earth if, if he travels back. In my view, I cease to exist when my body is disintegrated in his example. I just find that overwhelmingly intuitive and Derek and I talked about this and it's really very difficult to go deeper than intuition in this kind of case. But what he said to me was this, he and I were both what he called reductionists about personal identity. There's nothing more to my existence than uh, certain relations obtaining between bits of matter over time. And we both agree with that. But for me, it's really compelling that among the relations that have to hold are certain relations of physical and functional continuity of areas of my brain. There's a book by Ira Levine called The Boys from Brazil, 
And the premise of the book is that there's a, a Nazi organization that wants to recreate Hitler. And so they have DNA from Hitler and they have a whole bunch of parents and they try to recreate the, the circumstances of Hitler's life. And you can imagine that, let's say you had enough time that one of these boys would wind up having the same mental states as the original Adolf Hitler. Maybe it takes hundreds of years to kind of do this to the experiment. I take it there what you have is some kind of deliberate recreation of the Hitler type figure in, in the boys from Brazil. But we can imagine just through enough random chance that if humanity were to persist for another hundred million years, that there would be a being that has the same mental states as some other being. And so if you take out the causation line, you've got to accept then that both of those beings really are identical. That even though there is no relationship between them whatsoever, as long as they share the same mental states, they are the same. And that seems rather strange, which is I think what you're trying to capture with the thought experiment. You say, well, the machine on Mars just happened to generate a being that had the same mental states as the being on Earth. It could have generated any other number of plethora of beings. It just came out that way. Uh, and that seems like, you know, a, an odd uh, conclusion to reach that they are identical with each other. Yeah, interestingly, you mentioned the notion of the eternal recurrence. Lucretius actually held the view. I think it was Lucretius rather than Epicurus. I can't remember for sure. But one or the other of them, of these atomist philosophers, thought what the universe is is just a collection of atoms, uh, understood differently, from, of course, from the way that we think of atoms. But they're just floating around in, in space, uh, combining and uncombining in different ways. And, and Lucretius thought eventually these atoms will converge again in exactly the same way they are in me now. I can't remember whether he thought that that would constitute his coming back into existence. Now, in that case, he was actually imagining the very same physical particles recombining in exactly the way they were combined in him. And given my view, I'm more open to the idea that my existence could be discontinuous in this way. Though given the nature of physical organisms, I don't see how it could actually happen in practice. But if one were a theist, one could imagine that God could take all of the atoms or molecules or cells in my body, let's say, let's just say cells. God could disassemble all the cells in my body and disperse them to the winds for a while, in which case I would cease to exist in, in my view. There's just nothing there that could be me. But then he or she could reassemble them exactly as they were. Subjectively for me, if they were reassembled right where they had been disassembled, it might be as if I was unaware of the, of having ceased to exist for a while. That seems to me to be possible. And I always wondered, by the way, about the beaming down in, in, in Star Trek. Uh, this is the old Star Trek that I watched when I was a little kid. I always wondered when Captain Kirk would go to that little thing and, and just be these little sparkles and he would disappear. Then there'd be sparkles on the planet below and he would reappear. Whether what was happening was the transporter room was sort of somehow disassembling his cells or molecules and beaming them down where they would then be reassembled by this miraculous machine. 
or whether he would be being disintegrated in the transporter room and being made in and in Parfit style, remade through a kind of replication. But for Derek, either one would have been equally good. For me, only one of them would work. So that's very interesting, the difference between replication and reintegration. So in the one case, you've got the very particles of Captain Kirk beamed down to the planet and then the very same particles reorganized. And they're mm -hmm. more comfortable that it's Captain Kirk. And if it's not the case, if it's a scan of Captain Kirk, then those molecules that get disintegrated and discarded and then a fresh set of particles on the planet's surface yeah. are put together in a way that functions just like Captain Kirk did with the same mental states, then we're less happy about it. Well, that's my intuition. I'd be interested to know yours. I mean, it's always seemed to me that a human brain and body are infinitely more complexly related and the parts are physically with any known technology inseparable. But if you think about a simpler object, like I could have a watch and that I, I could identify that watch and I could take it apart and I could mail each piece of it to some distant part of the globe. Clearly my watch would have ceased to exist, but if I got people to mail them all back to me and then I reassembled them, I think I would have the very same watch. It wouldn't be a different watch. So I believe in the possibility of discontinuous existence. Things can begin to exist, cease to exist and come back into existence again. And in principle, that could be true of us. It's just that bodies aren't separate, you know, the parts aren't separable. So where I become uncomfortable with discontinuous existence is when it doesn't involve the original bits and pieces, right? That's me too. We agree. Yeah. Good. But so the, the kind of case that I have in mind, if I'm correct here, I think it's Davidson's case, the Swamp Man case. I don't know if it was his originally. It's the idea that Jeff is walking around and Jeff is living his life and then gets hit by a bus, right? Uh, we have lightning striking here just fortuitously because lightning is about to enter my story. So I mean, yeah, it's going to strike the mud or something, yes. isn't it? So 10 years later, completely unrelated, it seems, the lightning strikes the swamp on the other side of the globe and out walks a molecule for molecule, identical replica of Jeff just before he got hit by the bus. And he speaks like Jeff and he seems to have memories of Derek Parfit and he has very similar, identical, in fact, philosophical beliefs about personal identity. And he comes on our show and he chats with us and he remembers the email that we sent the previous uh, Jeff, uh, an mm -hmm. invite to the show. And uh, the question is, is that Jeff? Uh, he behaves just like Jeff. He has all of Jeff's mental states. He doesn't have Jeff's molecules and he has a severely discontinuous existence. Seems like it's not Jeff. Well, Derek thought it would be me. He made the teletransportation example, one in which the creation of the replica and the disintegration of the original were more or less simultaneous so that it wouldn't be discontinuous existence. It'd be discontinuous in a way because it would be spatially discontinuous, but perhaps not temporally discontinuous. And this is what Mark was getting at a moment ago about with enough time, there will eventually just randomly be somebody like me circumstances 
are unlikely to be the same, but I suppose with absolutely infinite time and enough planets and so on, who knows? But yeah, my intuition is as I'm about to be hit by the bus and somebody tells me, don't worry, in 10 years, there'll be a swamp man who will be just like you. I think, get out of here. I don't care about that guy. I mean, if it, it, it'll be some consolation to me because if I've got just only a couple more chapters of my magnum opus to write, I can be pleased that this guy will write them for me. And the, and my book, the one that I actually planned out, it, I really did it, you know, will get completed by somebody else. And that's good instrumentally. Mm. But, but you might get jealous, right? So you might, you might get jealous of the other guy completing your work. It well, I'm very like happy for good. him to do it. Uh, I'm going to be well disposed towards this person. I really think he's a very nice guy. But uh, I'm not going to worry about it hits his thumb with the hammer when he's uh, nailing some boards together and stuff like that. You know, that's his problem, not mine. I'm not going to anticipate those pains. Now, Derek would. And it might be that that other being is like Stephen Fry finishing off Douglas Adams's earlier work. It's a separate being. You're glad that he finished off the unwritten work, but it's not the same. So. Jason and I have this ongoing debate we've had for a couple of years now. So Jason takes the view that if you imbibe enough alcohol or enough of a certain kind of drug that it changes your mental states sufficiently, so that when you're in the states, your uh, dispositions are different. I can ask you what your philosophical views are and you give me totally different answers because you're, you know, high on heroin or mushrooms or uh, he even thinks, you know, too much champagne, that you then cease to exist. And he thinks then that a new being pops into existence that is a clone of you. It has your memories. It might share some of your prior beliefs, um, your dispositions, but it is not you. He thinks once you cease to exist, that ends. And I think with the disagreement, you think that when the, the atoms of you get, get split up around the world and then put back together, that you pop back into existence. He thinks, no, if you cease to exist, there can be no hibernation. You're... Uh, you're dead. And there can only be these clones of you later. Yes, that's all correct. But it's even worse than that. It's not just that your bits are dispersed and come back together. It's that your bits are dispersed, come back together with changes. So when you're inebriated or have taken the mushrooms or whatever it is, you undergo changes. And so when you come back, you're not the same as you. Wait a minute. I thought you, you don't come back. Well, yes, you don't exactly. <laughs> when, yeah. when someone can, when someone pops into existence, yeah. so there's body A, right? So body A is before you take the shrooms. Body yeah. B is on the shrooms. Body C is off the shrooms. I'm claiming it's that presumably all the same body, but let's let's let me be technical with you for a moment. One in the same body. It's inhabited by me, or I coexist with this body or in part of, as I would think of myself, I'm part of this body for a while. On your view, when I take the psychedelic and my mental life becomes completely different, I cease to exist. A new individual pops into existence in association with one in the same physical organism. I mean, nothing happens to it. And then as the drug wears off, the psychedelic man goes out of existence and a third person comes back into existence who's uncannily like me, but I'm not there. I'm not coming back into existence. That's correct. Yeah. If I got it, can I say why I don't think that's right? Sure, go for it. Okay. 
whether you think the psychological continuity doesn't require any physical basis or whether like me, you think it does, what I believe happens in that case is that all of the original person's dispositions, character traits, beliefs, values, desires, intentions, and so on persist throughout the state of inebriation. It's just that during that period, the person is having some hallucinations, some delusions or whatever. And these changes affect the dispositions that the person has at the time. Some dispositions are suppressed and impulses are fed into the brain by the chemicals and so on. But all the basic psychology of the original person is throughout this process preserved structurally in the tissues of the brain. And so I want to say that throughout this whole episode, all the person's character traits remain intact. All the person's beliefs, all the person's dispositions, they're intact. It's just for a period, they're disrupted, blocked, deactivated, whatever. But then once the chemical is gone, they become active again. And it's not like they've been replaced with duplicates. It's the same hardware. So there's a few problems I have with that solution or that objection. The one is I just don't find discontinuous existence plausible. Oh, well, so I don't think this is a discontinuous existence. I oh, so exist think throughout the whole continuous. thing. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think uh-huh. I exist throughout the whole thing. The original person doesn't go out of existence. No new person comes into existence. What's, what happens is that there is a brief period of superficial psychological discontinuity, just as there can be with a temporary amnesia or something like that. You know, Parfit had a brief episode of, of transient amnesia that was very strange. He had to ask his wife, did I write this book, Reasons in Persons? Hmm. Had no memory of having done it. And, you know, th- this was not a terribly unusual phenomenon. It, it happens, but it's temporary. So there's this strange, temporary, partial discontinuity of the psychology. And I think that's what's happening in, in the cases you describe it, but nobody ceases to exist. So what worries me is limiting cases. Let's say, for example, you take the shrooms and this trip goes on for a while. Two hours pass, four hours passes, and it should wear off, but it doesn't. And now we're at eight hours and last for a week and two weeks. And this is a phenomenon that we know about. And some people never come out of the trip. Suppose it's two years later and we come to you and we say, well, is this Jason? Is this the same Jason? And you're going to say what? Are you going to say, it depends on what happens next. So I can only tell you now whether it's still the same Jason if he comes back afterwards. Or are you going to say it's indeterminate whether it's the same Jason? Because I want to say it's not. And if it's not in the two-year case, I'm going to work backwards. Okay. Well, my response is one that is available to me that I think is not available to Derek, because for Derek, everything depends on what happens afterwards. For me, a 
disposition or a character trait or a belief or a value or something like this, the ingredients of a psychological connection are phenomena that are registered structurally in the tissues of the brain. If they're still there in their physical form after two years, then I'm still there. It's like my being in a coma for two years or something like that. I can be in a coma for a very long time, but there, there is something that counts as my reemerging from the coma. And that is the kind of reactivation of all those elements of my psychology that have been physically preserved in my brain. Now, this led me in a book that I wrote called The Ethics of Killing to distinguish radically between two forms of de facto or in practice irreversible coma. One is persistent vegetative state of a radical kind in which all the areas of the cerebral hemispheres are totally destroyed. And what remains is just a functional brain stem, which can keep the body going, but there's absolutely no possibility of consciousness in the brain anymore. It's so all the original tissues in which consciousness was realized have just been destroyed. There's another kind of coma in which a structure called the reticular formation that, and as I understand it, it's a sort of off on switch for consciousness that if this is switched off, you can't generate consciousness in the cerebral hemispheres, but the cerebral hemispheres can remain completely intact and undamaged. Now that's a case in which if the reticular formation is destroyed, the person is in an irreversible coma, not just permanent, but irreversible in any sort of practical way. And yet there is something that in principle would count as the revival of the one and the same person, namely those tissues in which this person's mental life is still preserved, but can't be brought to consciousness are still present and undamaged. So I say person still exists in that, in that form of coma, but not in the first form. I'm still unconvinced, right? For two reasons. So the one is this really seems to rely quite heavily on not the mental states themselves, but on the physical states in which they're instantiated. And Parfit is going to start to get worried about that, right? If he's really relying on those mental states rather. And if you buy into a psychological criterion of identity, you're going to start to feel uncomfortable, which I do. But the second reason is I can embellish the case further. Okay. So it's, it's not a coma that I'm in, in the case I'm, I'm representing. It's that I'm on shrooms. And during those two years, I start to act very differently. I might make new friends, uh, meet a new partner, have a very different life. I might change my religious beliefs and, and, and interact very differently with the people around me. Maybe they far prefer me. I stop practicing philosophy and become a guitarist and really uh, people far prefer than you, Jason. And, and then two years later, imagine a treatment comes out, which will stop the new Jason from acting and allow the old Jason to pop back in. It seems like the way I'm describing it now is the correct way to describe it is that there's, there's these different Jasons, right? The new Jason, the old Jason, the old Jason off the shrooms, the new Jason on the shrooms are two different people. One could make parallel claims about uh, dementia or brain damage, very severe forms of brain damage that alter character, memory, everything. But actually th there's this difference. And that is that in your case, if the original Jason 
reemerges after, say, several years of the dominance of the freewheeling rock musician Jason, and here we get the staid, boring philosopher again. What's happened is there's one continuous consciousness here. There's one brain generating consciousness. Presumably, the, does, does the Jason on the magic mushrooms have any memories of the life of Jason the philosopher? I mean, we have to, have, we have to ask these questions of detail. What I would say here is that there are two issues, and I, we owe it to Parfit that we can distinguish between these two issues. I think this is one of the most important philosophical discoveries that Derek made in that he distinguished between personal identity and what I would call the basis of rational, egoistic concern about the future. Like, if I know that I'm going to suffer horrible pain tomorrow, I fear that and worry about it in a way that I don't fear and worry about my wife's pain or my child's pain tomorrow, even though I might actually care more about their pain than I care about my own. It's not a matter of caring. It's the way I anticipate it as either something that's going to be in my consciousness or not. In that way, I think there's going to be continuity of consciousness throughout the careers of Jason one, Jason two, the rock star and Jason three, the reemergent philosopher. So on my view, all one in the same person, but with extreme psychological discontinuity in the middle, but then a recovery of the connections between Jason one and Jason three. Now, and here I'm just borrowing from Parfit, who's a great insight. I think this was is that Jason one can rationally in a self-interested way, care much less about what's going to happen to Jason two then it's rational for Jason one to care about Jason three, because Jason one and Jason three are closely psychologically connected and continuous, though with this terrible disruption for a time, this is something that doesn't really happen in practice. So we've got dementia, but that's permanent loss. There's no recovery. Now there is one, there is one interesting parallel here, and that is that in certain forms of dementia, I think in Alzheimer's, those who are close to the demented individual will say, she had real moments of lucidity yesterday. And what that means is suddenly the person kind of reemerges a bit. The way I've always thought of progressive dementia is the brain is just relentlessly progressively destroyed. Neurons are just being killed off. Areas of the brain are shrinking and atrophying and so on. But apparently it, it's got to be a bit different because what these moments of lucidity seem to show is that areas of the brain that supported certain kinds of consciousness are suppressed, but can come through in, in certain moments. And that's puzzling. And it makes it more like your case of the mushroom. It suggests that more is actually preserved than we have thought. If there are these intervals in which elements of the original person seem to reemerge. What I think one of Parfit's greatest insights was, is that he 
distinguish between identity and what I would say the rational basis of self-interested concern about one's future. Prior to this, everybody assumed that the rational basis for my prudential concern in the future is that there will be somebody in the future who is me, who's identical with me. And it's rational for me to care about that person in an egoistic way, but not rational for me to care about anybody else in an egoistic way. And what's more, identity is all or nothing. Either it's me or it's not me. And there, that suggests that my concern should be equal for all parts of my future life. I should care as much about what's going to happen to me in the further future than I as I care about what's going to happen to me tomorrow, because it's all equally me. And Parfit had some ingenious thought experiments, and I think originally derived from David Wiggins and maybe Sidney Shoemaker about brain transplants and that sort of thing, that convinced him that the reasons that I have to care about some person in the small case of that kind. So I wonder about two kinds of cases. The one is an ordinary case we're all going to go through, which is that you're born, you have a certain small number of mental states when you're an infant, you carry some memories with you as you grow up, you lose some as you grow older, and then you die. And so the question is whether that being is one continuous being or whether it's the series of overlapping arcs that really you owe your existence to that infant in the same way that you owe your existence to your great-grandfather, but that things are not identical with each other. Mm -hmm. The other one is a case from film. So uh, there's a movie called Memento, uh, and Guy Ritchie plays the, the lead character. And he's got this uh, interesting condition in that his wife gets brutally murdered and, uh, and he gets hit on the head and he now has uh, a certain kind of movie amnesia where he can only... In the future, are not just reducible to the one reason that that person will be me. Rather, reasons have to do with the fact that I will be related to that person in certain ways, named specifically through certain kinds of psychological relations certain forms of psychological connection and continuity. And the, 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 what's really radical about this is that whereas identity is all or nothing, these relations that in the normal case are constitutive of identity, these forms of psychological connection and continuity and so on, are matters of degree. And so that's my basis for saying that in your thought experiment involving Jason one, the philosopher Jason two, the musician with all the groupies and everything, and Jason three, the philosopher again, there's going to be strong psychological discontinuity between Jason one and Jason two and between Jason two and Jason three, but there's going to be this strange bridging psychological connectedness and continuity between Jason one and Jason three, the kind of thing that actually doesn't seem to happen to any significant degree in practice, though the phenomenon of moments of lucidity in Alzheimer's is perhaps a, a, a small case of that kind. I wonder about two kinds of cases. The one is an ordinary case we're all going to go through, which is that you're born, you have a certain small number of mental states when you're an infant, you carry some memories with you as you grow up, you lose some as you grow older, and then you die. And so the question is whether that being is one continuous being or whether it's the series of overlapping arcs that really you owe your existence to that infant in the same way that you owe your existence to your great-grandfather, but that things are not identical with each other. The other one is a, a case from film. So uh, there's a movie called Memento uh, and Guy Ritchie plays the, the lead character. 
And he's got this uh, interesting condition in that his, his wife gets brutally murdered and, uh, and he gets hit on the head and he now has uh, a certain kind of movie amnesia where he can only uh, remember certain things for about 15 minutes. And so the movie is told uh, backwards, but he has he's covered his body in tattoos so that he can sort of looks down and says, your wife was murdered, you're hunting your killers. This is your motivation. That being who has these short little moments with, let's say, you understand how the world operates, you have language, you, you know, understand basic economics, whatever it is, but a whole bunch of your personal memories are gone. So he has real problems with trust because he doesn't know if the person that he's talking to is a good person or a bad person because he has no yeah. memory of them. Is that being continuous? Or, or do we have a series of beings that last 15 minutes and then cease to exist? On my understanding of personal identity, there is what I call continuity of consciousness. There's one mind because one in the same brain is continuing to generate consciousness. There are, of course, intervals of sleep and whatever, but it's one in the same mind, one in the same stream of consciousness over time. So there's identity. There is a fairly extreme form of psychological discontinuity here. If you can't remember anything, it may not be as extreme as the people who made the movie suggest. He could look at a tattoo and say, your wife was murdered, you're hunting for the killers. If there weren't the same dispositions present somewhere in the man's mind or brain, he could read the stuff on his arm and go, well, so what? Yeah, I wrote this stuff on my arm, but who cares? So something is motivating him beyond just looking at the tattoos. So there's more of the original, whoever this guy is, than is suggested, I think, in, in the movie. It, I, I, I haven't seen a movie in 25 years, so I have no idea what this movie is or who the actor is you've referred to. But, I mean, there are cases like that or slight variations of that in real life. There are some similar cases discussed by Oliver Sacks in some of his books that are really fascinating. What I would say is that if this person were to die at some point, that would be a comparatively minor misfortune because the really great lack of psychological unity in that life means he's not going to be related to himself a year from now in a way that gives him egoistic reason to plan for or look forward to what is going to happen to him, because I do believe it's going to be the same person in the same body a year from now. So again, I'm my basis for saying that is taken straight from Parfit, namely identity is not what matters. The strength of the psychological relations that produce a kind of deep unity in a life over time. That's what gives people reasons to care about themselves in the future in a way that they shouldn't care about, and which is, wouldn't be rational prudentially for them to care about other people, even though it will be the same person because there's continuity of consciousness generated by one in the same brain. Now, what Derek would say about that case is, I think, quite different. He would have to say, there's nobody who's persisting through all of this. These are kind of momentary selves, one after another, weakly linked 
so that this person might have some reason to care about what's going to happen to, will it be the same individual tomorrow? I don't know what Derek would say about that. It may or may not be the same individual in a way, as Parfit says, identity isn't what matters. So it doesn't matter whether it's the same individual. This person might have some reason to care about what's going to happen to whoever's going to be in his body tomorrow. But because the psychological connections from hour to hour, day to day, week to week, and so on are so incredibly weak, there's just nothing binding the life together in that way. This guy really has very little to look forward to, very little to care about, and very little to fear. And therefore, death is not bringing to a conclusion something that could have continued in a way that could have mattered to this individual on it at any particular time. So this is very interesting, this distinction between continuity and identity. If I understood you correctly, it's possible to have identity without continuity. So identity is not sufficient for continuity. And you would care more about the continuity than the identity. So in other words, if this person in the movie doesn't have continuity, then even if he does have identity, it's still him tracking through time, the very same numerically identical person, he shouldn't really care about what happens to the later person because that later person isn't psychologically continuous with him, even yeah. if he is the identical, numerically identical person. Yeah, now that's possible on my view that there can be identity with basically no psychological continuity in Parfit's sense, that is overlapping chains of fairly strong psychological connections from day to day, week to week, and so on over a long period of time. On Derek's view, if there is identity, that is a psychological continuity that consists of these overlapping chains of strong psychological continuity, if there is that, there's always going to be reasonably strong grounds for egoistic concern about the future. So our views do diverge in their implication, you know, our different views diverge in their implications in this way. And then one way my view is slightly more radical than his. On the other hand, he can say the same things about what matters that I want to say. Our views about what matters can, can be pretty closely congruent, even if our views about identity differ. So Derek's also famous for the non-identity problem. Uh, can you tell us a bit about the problem and some of its ethical implications? Yeah, that was another of his really astonishing insights that just has unbelievable implications for all areas of uh, practical ethics and normative ethics. And it's so simple. And I, I, I've been amazed that nobody thought of it and, until he did. Once you realize it, it just seems so obvious. And it could have been discovered by almost anybody in the history of philosophy who knew anything about the nature of human reproduction. Namely, that if you uh, have children with a different person or at a different time, that the child is going to be a different individual. As long as that information was available to people, they could have worked out the non-identity problem and its implications, but nobody got it until Derek got to it. I just think it's astonishing. The non-identity problem is basically this, that who comes into existence depends on when a human conception occurs, because when a human conception occurs, 
naturally, apart from IVF or something like that, determines which gametes fuse together to create an embryo, which will be, you know, genetically and therefore phenotypically distinct in, in various ways. And what Derek realized is indefinitely many of our acts affect when conceptions are going to occur and which people are going to be involved in conception. And this leads to the problem that there are many acts that we do that bring about what we think of as bad effects in people's lives that are nevertheless not on balance bad for those people and not worse for those people and arguably don't violate their rights, even if the, the effects are quite bad, precisely because the acts that cause these bad effects are necessary conditions of the existence of the person in whose life they occur. So let me, I'll give you the easiest example to make sense of, and that's climate change. So starting from now, if we go on producing greenhouse gases and so on and acting, following the same policies that we've been following, we will produce really terrible effects and say, that, well, I'm going to call them the worst effects of climate change, let's say a, hit, a century from now. So a hundred years from now, there'll be these terrible effects on people. You can imagine most people's lives will still be worth living. It's just that they will contain a lot more suffering, injury, disease, and early death. They can still be worth living. Maybe be like the lives of people who lived 10,000 years ago or something like that. If we change our policies globally, if there's a global change of policies that we radically readjust our energy policies and so on, we can prevent these worst effects of climate change a hundred years from now and, and people's lives will be much, much, much better, maybe better than ours are now. But here's the important point. If we continue to follow the policies we're following, people's lives will go in a certain ways. If we radically change policies globally, that's going to affect the details of the lives of everybody on the planet in some way or other. People's lives are going to be affected in small ways or larger ways, but even in the small ways, that means their lives are going to differ in, in certain ways. They're going to take different paths. People will meet different people. Different people will be romantically attracted to one another because they, they, they meet different people. Different marriages will be made and therefore different people will be created from these unions. And even among those couples that already exist now, their lives will be different and they will conceive their children at different times, meaning that they will, they too will have different children. And these effects will multiply over time so that after a hundred years, if we change the policies and prevent climate change from happening, prevent the worst effects of climate change a hundred years from now, people will have really good lives, but they won't be the same people who would have lived if we had pursued the policies that we're pursuing now, if we had continued to pursue those policies. So if we do what will bring about the worst effects of climate change, there will be a huge number of people who will suffer these terrible effects. But if we had changed policies and not produced these effects, that wouldn't have been better for those people. 
because they never would have existed. And so what we do when we continue with our present policies is to produce bad effects in the lives of these people, but our having caused these effects won't be bad for them or worse for them and won't have violated their rights because if we hadn't done these things, they would never have existed. And it's not worse or bad to exist with a life that's worth living than never to exist at all. And so we have to figure out some other way of explaining why causing climate change is wrong. We can't appeal to the traditional way of explaining wrongful acts, namely what we're doing is bad for, harmful to, worse for, violates the rights of particular people. What if the solution is to untie the suffering from the sufferer? So you don't say the reason why it's wrong for me to perform this action is because it causes suffering in a particular person or set of persons. Perhaps the solution is to say it's because it causes suffering. So if I add up all the units of suffering, it's greater if I enact global warming than if I don't, even if it's different people who are involved in the two scenarios in a hundred years time, isn't that a potential solution? Yeah. I mean, what you're su suggesting is that our explanation can be basically impersonal, shouldn't appeal to effects on people for better or worse, but just appeal to the comparative values of the different outcomes. There can either be a world in which lots of people will be much happier or a world in which lots of different people will be much less happy. And surely we have a reason to bring about the world in which there are more happy people because that's the world, that's the outcome in which there'll be more of what's valuable, namely happiness. What Parfit showed is we can't have a simple solution like that. If, for example, suffering is impersonally bad, so we should try to reduce suffering, we definitely want to acknowledge that happiness is also impersonally good. And so just as we have impersonal reasons to prevent suffering, we also have impersonal reasons to create happiness. And we can have these reasons to create happiness taking the form of reasons to create happy people. So one way in which we can now do what's good is to bring more and more happy people into existence. And we have to decide how strong that reason is in relation, for example, to our reason to bring about happiness for existing people. So, and so here, all, all these people living lives of a very low quality of life somewhere, and I could, I could make their lives a lot better, let's say, or I could implement some sort of governmental policy that will cause there to be a lot more happy people in some born in some other area of the world. Is it really every bit as important to bring these new people into existence as it is to make these existing people better off, much better off? And that's what we would have to accept. There's also what Farfit called the repugnant conclusion, which is just this. That if our concern is with the impersonal values of outcomes, we want to bring about the greatest amount of happiness or whatever, then for any world in which you could have a finite number of people with lives of you know, just unimaginable happiness for each person, there'll be another world or another outcome in which there's more happiness because there's so many more people 
But each of the people in this world has a life that's just barely worth living. It's just the tiniest amount of happiness, but with enough of them, they've got more happiness. And so if our concern is just with the impersonal evaluation of outcomes, we're going to have to think that the world with the more happiness, but everybody's just got a life that's barely worth living, is the better outcome. And that's highly counterintuitive. So Derek thought the solution was going to be some rather complicated impersonal principle. At least that's what he thought when he wrote Reasons in Persons. Towards the end of his life, he began to think that the, the right theory was going to take a different shape and back to benefits and harms and affecting people for good or bad, but accepting that we can affect people for the good by causing them to exist with lives that are worth living, and we can affect people for the bad by causing them to exist with lives that are not worth living. So it seems that one way of thinking about future generations is to have a status quo bias and say, well, if we keep going along the road we're going, there are these certain sets of people that will be created, and then there's a veering off the road that will mean those people don't exist and some new set exist. We might think that there are so many choices that we make all the time that it's, uh, it's not clearly the case that there's sticking to a road and picking a new path, and that all we have are uncertain future people. The other implication of the view is when we think about redressing the wrongs of the past, we get into some difficult puzzles. So we can imagine a situation uh, in America where you have the descendants of slaves, and uh, they say, we would wish it to be the case that there was no slavery. Uh, and if that were the case, they, of course, would not exist, or they would exist in some other country under a totally different set of circumstances. And so the desire they have for the past to be undone might be a desire for them to be undone. Yeah, I, I didn't quite understand the, the first point you made. So let me just address the second one about, about say, for example, slavery in, in the United States. The standard views about reparations for historical injustice, deeply challenged by Parfit's non-identity problem. And this is something that I think the best philosophers who have been working on the idea of reparations for historic injustice have been aware of and have been trying to deal with in their work. But I think a lot of people who think about reparations for historical injustice are unaware of the problem, which you just stated. But it, perhaps it's a little more complicated than what you suggested. It's not that they want slavery undone. They recognize that they can't have that. But what they want is some form of reparation or compensation, supposedly for the harm that they suffer as a result of what was done to their ancestors. But the problem is, of course, with the non-identity problem, there are you know, no contemporary black Americans whose origins are traceable to Africa, whose ancestors came to the United States, let's say, any time before fairly recently, who would have existed now, who would exist now, were it not for slavery. I mean, if the United States had not had practice of slavery in the 18th and 19th centuries, I would never have existed. No contemporary Americans would have existed. The history of the continent would have been utterly different. And so it's just not obvious how any contemporary Black American of African ancestry has been harmed by slavery. After all, this person exists and has a life that's worth living and would never have existed had it not been for slavery. So 
my view is that there are all kinds of reasons to redistribute wealth and resources in a country like the United States. But those reasons don't really derive from what was done to people's great, great, great grandparents. You know, they're much more to do with what people's circumstances are now, and the extent to which people themselves are responsible or not responsible for their circumstances and that kind of thing. So to clarify the first point that I made, if I think about your climate change case, you're saying that we can either operate as we currently do, which will lead to a certain set of future people being born who are in some sense known to us because we are operating as we are. And the other one is to pick a different policy, which is to change our policy direction with the implication that all of those future people who would have been born if we kept going down the same track we're going will not exist. And some other set of people we've brought into existence. And my claim is that things are much more complicated than that. To say that there is a sharp distinction between acting as we currently do and making other kinds of choices implies that there is some certainty about future people in one case, but not in another. My view would be that there is no certainty about future people at all. There are always so many factors that could play a role in who those people would be. In other words, whether I stop at the traffic lights or not could make a difference as to, you know, which yeah. woman I meet and impregnate. You've really got this just elements of chaos all the time, that it seems that I can't be wronging these future people who had a definite existence by making a particular policy choice because they really have no existence whatsoever. But of course, this makes it difficult to work out what we owe these non-existent indeterminate people. I think I understand better now what you're saying, and I think I agree with it, namely that it's not that, it, it, it's not that we have a choice between two determinate future populations. Rather, there are indefinitely many different populations of people who might exist in, on the earth a hundred years from now, and which they will be depends on, as you say, an indefinitely vast number of ways in which things go from now on everywhere in the world. The point still remains that if we follow certain policies and there are determinate people who exist a hundred years from now in different places on the planet who are experiencing disease, injury, early death, and so on from adverse climate conditions, the point that Parfit made is just, is very simple. If we had done differently, those people wouldn't have existed. And that's going to be true even if we did differently for some different reason. But the point here is what we've always been tempted to think is if only our ancestors hadn't done what they did, those selfish bastards with all their big SUVs and their planes and all this stuff and all their meat eating with their cows and whatnot, our lives would be so much better because the climate would be so much different. That's a natural way. And it's the way people have always thought. But what Parfitt's showed is when we have that natural thought, we're believing something false. We just would never have existed. And a lot of other people have picked up on this. Saul Smolensky in Israel has written about the fact that Jews want to say, God, we wish the Holocaust hadn't occurred. But what that means is that for every Jew who exists now in the world, 
that particular person and everyone that person loves and cares about would never have existed. Different people would have existed. And Saul sort of agonizes over this. Can I really be glad that the Holocaust occurred? Because that's a necessary condition of my daughter's existence and so on. So yeah, it's a pervasive problem. I mean, that's what's so powerful about Parfit's discovery of the non-identity problem. It's just pervasive. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Brandon Navat Podcast. My name is Jimmy Mullen, and I will be interning with Brandon Navat from here on out. I decided to wear my Hawaiian shirt for this short little video because Jason and Mark were both wearing theirs this, uh, this episode, so I wanted to show some solidarity there. I'm studying political philosophy at Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee, which also happens to be the rival undergrad school of Jeff McMahon's University of the South, a.k.a. Swanee. Like our rivalry goes back 50, 100 years. So it pains me to say this, but Jeff is absolutely brilliant. I want to recommend that all of you check out Principles and Persons, The Legacy of Derek Parfit on Amazon. It is Jeff's latest book. So thanks for listening, and I'll be tuning in from here on out.